This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture is the text of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word, and thanks be to God. So uh, right now we're studying uh, the Psalter together uh, during our sermon time and in this series that we've entitled uh, uh, Psalms Worship in Every Circumstance. And so we're not going to try and cover every psalm uh, in this series, but we're hoping to provide you with a random, not random, that's the exact wrong word, with, with a, what do we say, a representative sampling uh, of the Psalter. Delete, random, uh, insert, representative. And so I want to do things a little differently this morning uh, compared to what I normally do, and that is I just want to jump in uh, to Psalm 1. Uh, I don't want to give any further introduction uh, or explanation to the Psalter or to this series, uh, but I want to give some thought to Psalm 1, and then I, in the second point, uh, I want to back up a little bit, and at that point, think about the entire Psalter. So we're going to look at it this way. Uh, the Psalm of Introduction the Psalter for every circumstance, and the man of Psalm 1. So again, uh, the Psalm of Introduction, uh, again, I want us to understand this Psalm, and I want us to focus on one crucial and I think intensely practical application for our lives. Uh, second, the Psalter for every circumstance, uh, while we'll, where we'll consider why Psalm 1 is such a fantastic introduction uh, to the whole. And finally, the man of Psalm 1, uh, where we're going to conclude with some thoughts on this extraordinary human uh, described in Psalm 1. So first, the Psalm of Introduction. If you have your uh, worship folders out or your insert, I can't remember exactly where the text is this week. You'll want to have it out. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, a lot uh, on the first four verses uh, right now. Uh, the Psalm, the entire Psalm, is a comparison of and a juxtaposition uh, between uh, uh, two types of people, two categories of people. Uh, the righteous are finally labeled as such in verse 5, and the wicked are labeled as such in verse 1. But if you just kind of look at the text, verses 1 and 2 compare what the righteous uh, and the wicked do. Uh, verses 3 and 4 compare who they are. Uh, verses 5 and 6 compare where they're going. And my uh, estimation of the best way to enter into the psalm and enter into our lives is to look at the metaphor, uh, the two metaphors for who they are in verses uh, three and four. So as I unpack these two metaphors, I want us to ask ourselves these questions. Who do we want to be? Uh, what life do we want to experience? And how do we want to be experienced? Okay, so look at verse three. He's speaking of the blessed man, verse one, or the righteous man, verse five. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, more literally, uh, from the Hebrew, he is like a sapling transplanted by canals of water. He's like a sapling transplanted 
by canals of water. And the psalmist is calling to mind the ordinary practice of a sapling uh, being found in the valley of a wilderness uh, where there is a stream of water, but the stream of water will only be there during the rainy season. Season, excuse me. And, and so a sapling has been found, one that will certainly die uh, when the stream evaporates uh, by summer. And this sapling is found, and it's carefully, literally in the Hebrew, transplanted uh, into a nursery where there are these canals that have been dug either from underground springs or from a large river. And, and this way, the sapling can have water uh, year round. Keep reading. Because of this, the tree yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And then the psalmist reminds us that this is a metaphor for a blessed person, a real man, a real human. And he says, in all that he does, he prospers. He's not saying that every business venture is going to go well. He's not saying that the man is going to be rich. He's just saying he's going to be fruitful in every context of life. Verse three is is what life is like for the righteous man. It speaks to rootedness, stability, nourishment, a spiritual health regardless of external circumstances. But in addition to that, the righteous man is not just uh, sturdy and calm, but the righteous man is fruitful. And so we're reminded that this sapling is, is transplanted near a water source that enables it to be vibrant and sturdy. And at the same time, it also enables it to bear fruit. This is what the psalmist is saying. People will want to be around the righteous man. There is a consistent theme in scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a consistent theme in scripture that describes character and growth and maturity in our lives as fruit, as prosperous fruit. Probably the most famous place in all the scriptures is the New Testament where the apostle Paul says that this fruit is brought about by the Holy Spirit and the fruit is singular. In a word, it is love. Galatians 5, the fruit singular of the spirit is singular, love. But then love is further defined as joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the idea in each one of these is that the one who loves lives for other people. The one who loves dies to self for the benefit of others. So get this, the psalmist is saying that the righteous man is constantly providing nourishment to and life for the people who live around them. So think about it, fruit. Fruit is never there for the tree's nourishment or the tree's benefit. Fruit is always there for the nourishment and the benefit and the enjoyment of others. So remember, verses three and four are gonna tell us uh, what these two groups are are like, who they are. So on the one hand, you have someone who's rooted and sturdy and stable, substantial, steadfast, nourished, content, alive, flourishing, fruitful, a blessing to others. Someone surrounded by grateful people whose lives are much better because the righteous person is there. But on the other hand, verse four, the wicked. The word wicked in the Hebrew is literally the godless. It's just those who live as if there is no God. We'll unpack more about the wicked in a moment when we look at verse one. But for right now, just, mention, just look at what verse four says. The wicked are not so. They're not fruitful. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Look at the comparison. It's not between a fruitful tree and a fruitless tree. It's not between a fruitful tree and a less fruitful tree. It's between a fruitful tree and chaff. 
right? So chaff is that husk that surrounds the grain uh, that is removed from the grain through the process of threshing. So the grain is flailed or beaten and then it's thrown up into the air and the much heavier kernels of grain, those that have glory and substantial worth fall to the earth, but the chaff, the husk, the shell is blown away by the wind. It's, It's light and lifeless. And the psalmist is saying that chaff is without real substance. It's without enduring worth. It's dust. It's irritating. The one that's like chaff is blown about by every wind. It's dry and lifeless. Nobody values chaff. Nobody wants to be around chaff. Chaff is an allergen that annoys. But with all that said, verse 1 tells us that the godless person thinks they're amazing. They teach others their way. And they scorn the godly. I actually have, on the surface, an illustration of this reality in my neighborhood. There's a retired man in our neighborhood who's always outside, always talking to and loving on the neighbors, always lending tools, always helping with projects, always giving gifts. He's fruitful. There's another man in our neighborhood where the fence around his property is quite revealing. He's rarely outside. Nobody knows him. He's largely unapproachable. I don't want to... I don't want to press it too far. I'm not God. I have no idea what's going on in these guys' hearts. I have no idea what they've been through. I have no idea what they're up to. But on the surface, that's a picture that can illustrate the contrast between the tree and the chaff, between the righteous and the wicked. And and here are our three questions again. Who who do you want to be? A transplanted tree or wind-tossed chaff? What do you want to experience in life? Rootedness or being blown about? Vibrancy or lifelessness? Most importantly, how do we want people to experience us? As loving or annoying? As helpful or as painful? Verses three and four compare who they are, but remember, verses one and two compare what they do. You could say it this way. Verses one and two uh, compare what they did to become who they are. What they did to become who they are. This is great insight for us. The text tells us exactly what to do to be like a tree. Look at verse one. Blessed is the man, speaking of the righteous man. But before the psalmist tells us what he does, verse two, he tells us what he doesn't do, verse one. And so by poetic comparison, verse one describes the one who is like chaff. So verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Look at the progression and look at the cycle of verse one. Uh, The fool becomes like chaff by listening to the advice of the wicked, literally the godless, explaining to him a reality without God. Then they decide for themselves and take their stand as a sinner. So they're now one who breaks God's law because they've determined that there is no God. And then eventually they sit on the session, if you will, of scoffers and scorners. They're now the elders who make fun of the godly and they give advice to anyone starting out on the path. It's just the world. Verse one, the blessed man, the righteous man, he doesn't do that. But verse two, while not doing that, he does this. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. How do we become trees? We read our Bibles, we delight in our Bibles and we meditate on our Bibles. We hear the law of the Lord and we think 10 commandments. We think moral law. The, 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 law, the word here is Torah. And a lot of you in your footnotes, uh, it'll tell you that this word means instruction or teaching. And so while the teaching of the Lord certainly includes um, um, the law of the God in the formal sense, it includes so much more. You, you need to know for the original audience, Torah was the word they used for scripture. 
Torah was their Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, this word is used for the Pentateuch, it's used for the prophets, it's used for the Psalms. It's their scriptures. Want to become a tree? Delight in the Bible. And, and, and while the word delight is not used in sexual ways here, the word is almost always used in the Old Testament for sexual desire. Especially the desire of a young man for his virgin, for his fiancée. Delight speaks to a holistic passion. Not a head-level interest, but a gut-level desire for and longing for and pursuit of the Bible. Like an 18-year-old in the ancient Near East for his fiance. So first, to be a tree. Passionately pursue the Bible, but further, on the law of the Lord, meditate day and night. Uh, Simply reading the Bible is not enough. You have to meditate. Meditation is not a word that we often use, so I want to define it very clearly and very biblically. This word for meditate is often rendered in the Old Testament in other contexts as plot, plan, devise. To to meditate is to apply the Bible to your life. Uh, To meditate is to plan out or plot out in your life what the teaching of the Bible would look like. The point is often made by many, I'm not the first to think of this, but the point is often made that biblical meditation is not at all the same as Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is, is uh, the, the practice and the discipline where, where you essentially try to empty your mind of rational thought. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It is a furiously rational process. It is the taking of a truth and chewing on it and exploring it and thinking about it and thinking about how it applies to your life, thinking about where it applies to your life, making a plan to live your life in accordance with what you see in the Bible. That's meditate. It's not mysterious, but it's hard work. It's a lot easier to empty your mind of thought. I can guarantee you that. Want to be a tree? Passionately pursue and furiously meditate on the instruction of the Lord. The righteous man, keep going, keep going, keep going. He, he meditates day and night. We hear that and we think continually. We, we make it like you, could, you have to always meditate. And since I can't always meditate, I'm never going to meditate. But scholars of Hebrew poetry, scholars of the Psalms will tell you, it doesn't mean continuously. It means day and night. Not once in 24 hours, but twice. <laughs> but at the start of the day and at the start of the night, chew on the Bible starting to sound like, nah, I won't go there. And I'll just tell a joke about the 18-year-old and his honeymoon later at the downtown site. That was for those of you listening. You want to be a sturdy, nourished, fruitful tree? In this church, do city Bible reading. City Bible reading is the initiative at New City where participants in the morning privately read and meditate on the scheduled chapters and then we move out into our day looking to live out what we just experienced and plotted. If you do CBR, you know that we've designed it in a way to teach you and to reinforce in you meditation. You may not have known that, but that's our goal the whole time. We quickly pray, we quickly ask God to teach us and then we listen to him as we read his word. And then if you do CBR, you know that we have four questions that aid in meditation. They happen to be the same four questions Martin Luther used to ask himself when he meditated. The same four questions Martin Luther told all those who helped him expand the Reformation uh, that he taught them to use when they meditated. They're very simple. What does this tell you about God? Adoration. What does this tell you about yourself? Confession. What does this tell you about Jesus and his gospel? Thanksgiving. 
How do I need God to change me and empower me to live this way in the future? Supplication. You see why? We don't do CBR because it's just like, let's think of something for them to do. Let's make them do something. Let's make them do something every day. I want you to be trees. I want you to tap your roots into God and into his love and into his gospel. And I want you to be ready for life. We become like trees by passionately and furiously reading and applying God's word. We become like chaff by not. You're going to soak something in. It's either going to be the word or the world. So first, the psalm of introduction. And I know I haven't touched on verses five and six yet. I'm going to do that in a minute. But for now, I just want to give some thought and some consideration to the entire Psalter, okay, for the, for the entire series. So point to the Psalter for every circumstance. Now, keep in mind what, what I've said the past couple of weeks, that the Psalter, the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, is a compilation of and a collection of, of poems that were written over a thousand-year period. So these poems were written from the time of Moses around 1400 BC uh, to the time that the, the, exi- the exiled Jews uh, came home uh, around 400 BC. And so as you read through the various Psalms, you'll see that they're all very unique. And at the same time, you'll begin to see, if you study them across the years, that they begin to fit into genres. That you're basically, there's about eight to 10 different Psalms and they all show up in various places and in in various details. So there are these Psalms of laments. There are these Psalms of praise. There are these Psalms of confidence. There are these genres. And so my angle on this series is to look at a few Psalms in each genre and to think about the circumstances of life that that Psalm and that genre is best applied to and is best sung during. So in other words, the Psalter teaches us how and shows us how to worship God in the various circumstances of life and in the continual ups and downs of life. And so the scholars agree that around 400 BC, a compiler, not an editor who went in and changed the words, but a compiler took these various Psalms from Israel's history and made a collection of them, made a compilation of them. And so in light of this, you can see that Psalm 1 is really crucial. It was very intentionally put at the start of of the Psalter. And so you can begin to see it's really crucial and you begin to note it's not even a, it's not even a song. It is a poem, but it's not a song and it's not a prayer. It's actually a meditation. So you begin to think there's 149 songs and there's this one meditation at the beginning. And you begin to ask yourself questions like, why did the compiler put this psalm first? In what way does this psalm introduce all the Psalter? Or better said, in what way does this psalm bring me into the Psalter? And here's the answer. Psalm 1 tells us to proactively pursue and meditate on the Psalms day and night in order to be ready for the circumstances, the ups and downs that are sure to come. If you study Psalm 1 in general, not in the context of a series, and you have three points on the Psalm, there is so much there to learn and to consider and to think about, about how to become sturdy and fruitful in this life. But if you think about the psalm in the context of the Psalter, it teaches us to pursue and to meditate on the psalms and to plan out in advance our reaction to and our worship in the vicissitudes of life. It's like this. I said to some friends this week uh, that I wish I had read all the books I could on parenting before I had children. Because now that I have children, I'm too busy to read all the books on parenting that I desperately need to read. And that my kids desperately need me to read. I didn't say I wasn't reading any books. I just said I don't have time to read all the books. I wish I had. 
Psalm 1 is saying, be, be like a chipmunk. Store food in your cheeks for later. Uh, Rue was telling me this week that he had heard a reporter uh, for ESPN uh, talking about his experience of the tragic events in Boston on Monday at the marathon. And this reporter for ESPN uh, was saying that as the bombs exploded, uh, he noticed a radical difference between the response of the spectators and those who had been trained for such a time as this. He said that the spectators were shocked, frozen, running about, some screaming, some holding their mouths. But he said the Boston police were amazing. They stepped into the fray, they led, they served, they were fruitful. Now think about it. Why is that? How did this difference come about? Because the police had at an earlier time meditated upon and created a plan for tragic events like this one. And then their plan became their life. And that's my hope in this series is for you to know what to pray, for you to know how to process, for you to know how to worship when you encounter, for example, a low that is due to a physical or a social or a natural cause. My hope is for us to know how to pray and process and worship through an encounter where our sin takes us into a low. I want us to know beforehand how to, how to, how to encounter and, and how to worship and how to praise and how to work through a high where God either gives a gift or he gives a deliverance to a hardship. I have found as a pastor, uh, thanking God at a high is much harder um, than begging God for deliverance at a low. But I would say that both are absolutely crucial to our growth in the gospel. So, so among others, we're gonna study in advance Psalms of lament. So we know how to encounter those lows brought about in our lives by others. We're, we're gonna study Psalms of repentance. So we know where to go uh, when we cause a low in our own life with sin. We're gonna study Psalms of thanksgiving. Uh, so when God chooses to give us a gift or chooses to deliver us, we know where to go and we know what to do with our heart. And so this happened to, this, this, this actually happened uh, this week. Last Sunday, as some of you know, if those of you here, most of you know, I, I taught on Psalm uh, 23, which is sort of the ultimate Psalm of confidence. It's, it's best applied to those times in life where, where things are hazy and foggy and you're unsure as to what might happen. It's best used in those times where you begin to feel uh, uh, fear and anxiety. And so I taught that in theory and I said, this is best to be used in those circumstances. And, and my friend got a phone call this week with some really hard news. Uh, created some serious uncertainty in their life that uh, could result in significant loss in their life. They have no idea if things are gonna go up or if things are gonna go down. And my friend went to Psalm 23 and he began to own it. He began to pray it and he began to worship through it. That's our goal for this series. Think about CBR with me again. Have you ever wondered why we read the Psalms on Saturday? We read the rest of the Old Testament uh, chapter by chapter across three years. So for example, Genesis is in year one across about two months when it's all said and done. But I have us read a psalm every Saturday. I have us read a psalm at the preeminent spot in the weekly calendar. It is the day where I presume that we have more time to read than during the week. It is the day that I presume that we should chew on one chapter instead of two. It is the day that I am hoping that we are preparing for and meditating upon how to respond in the inevitable realities of life. It is a day to sink our roots deep into the waters of God and into his love and into his gospel so that when the drought and the hurricane hit, and they will, we're ready to be steadfast and we're ready to be fruitful. 
Psalm 1 tells us that we're about to read a compilation of worship songs that apply to all of life and it would behoove us to meditate upon them in advance so that we can be fruitful in every season of life. So let's go back to Psalm 1. I want to wrap up our sermon. I want to think about verses 5 and 6. Point 3. The man of Psalm 1. So if you would, remember our crude outline. Verses 1 and 2, what the righteous and the wicked do. Verses 3 and 4, who who they are and who they become as they do what they do. And now verses 5 and 6, where they're going and what the the future holds for them. Okay, so read with me. Verses 5 and 6. Uh, Both the righteous and the wicked, so the godless, are going to be in God's court of justice one day at the end of the age. Verse five, therefore the wicked, the godless, will not stand in the judgment, nor uh, sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows or protects or guards or watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now this, uh, this part should make us a little uncomfortable. See, I'm comfortable with a continuum, but, but Psalm 1 has been rather binary. It's either righteous or wicked. The righteous is always delighting and meditating. Because of that, the righteous is always yielding fruit in every season. The leaf of the righteous never withers. And all they do, they're fruitful. I mean, it's so binary. It's yes or no. Look at the wicked. They're not a, fruit, they're not, they're not a fruitless tree or a less fruitful tree as if, as if it's a continuum. They're chaff. And the chaff will not stand in the judgment. It says God's going to guard the path of the righteous to lead them to blessing, but the wicked will perish. And this makes me incredibly uncomfortable because the binary nature of this psalm reminds me of the clear teaching of the Bible. One selfish season, one fruitless season, one self-centered season, one self-centered relationship, one self-centered day, one godless moment, and I'm wicked. And by that, I mean this. I am unable to stand before a holy, pure, and righteous judge. I am unfit to be with him forever. Psalm 1, while I agree with it, while I see how it all flows together, at the end of the day, it buries me. Psalm 1 shows me that I'm not the man. It shows me that I'm not the one. Look again at verse 1. This is so fascinating to me. Blessed is the man. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers throughout the whole psalm, they're always plural. But the man of Psalm 1, the tree, verse 3, is singular. The psalmist is creating a puzzle and a riddle for us. At the start of the psalm, he's telling us about this ultimate man, this extraordinary human that is compared to all other humans as beautiful. But in verses five and six, the righteous are plural. There's a congregation, there's a church of them. And in verse six, the righteous are plural and God is watching over their path and he's guarding them. He's leading them to blessing and life. And here's the riddle, here's the puzzle, here's where we meditate. There's one who is righteous, but there are many who are called righteous. There's one who is fruitful, but there are many who will stand righteous in the judgment. Unfortunately, this is point three. You know the answer to the question. But who is the man? Who is the one? And how does the one give many righteousness? It's Jesus. Think about his life. The gospels tell us of a man who prayed day and night, 
The Gospels tell us of a man who was selfless and fruitful in every circumstance, whether the woman at the well or Pilate or Judas, Jesus always looking to serve and to save. Uh, The gospel tells us of a man who loved scripture, who loved to be in the synagogue listening to scripture, a man saturated with scripture, a man who delighted in scripture and lived his life according to scripture. I had a seminary professor once make the point that you can know that Jesus delighted in the word because 10% of his words recorded in the gospels, 10% were Old Testament quotes. I don't know that I remember the numbers correctly, but I believe he said that there are 1,800 verses in the Gospels that include Jesus talking, and in 180 of them, he's quoting the Old Testament. That's his scriptures, his Torah. And at first, that didn't sound like a lot to me because I was kind of a smarty pants like some of you. And then he said, think about it. Consider all of your words yesterday. Now, this was 10 years ago, so he didn't say this, so I'll apply it to us. Talking, tweeting, emailing, Instagramming, Facebooking, Pinteresting. Would 10% of your words yesterday be quotes or inferences from the Bible? Not mine. Whether he was preaching, Matthew 5 through 7, whether he was enduring temptation, Luke 4, whether he was dying on the cross, Mark 15, Jesus delighted in the word and his meditation on the word became obvious by what he said. Out of a man's heart, so he speaks. So how does the man of Psalm 1, the one man of righteousness, create a congregation of righteous people who have not been righteous on their own? And this is how the puzzle, this is how the riddle is solved. After being the righteous one of verses 2 and 3, instead of being blessed, Jesus is cursed. Instead of standing before the judge as righteous, Jesus is declared wicked in our place. Instead of having the Lord guard his path, Jesus was forsaken and he perished. After living life like a sturdy, fruitful tree, he became chaff, dust that was driven away. And further, what's incredible to me is that even on the cross, Jesus is quoting scripture. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing that Jesus had taken to heart Psalm 1 as the introduction to the Psalter. Showing that he had meditated on Psalm 22 and he applied it to his life. He prayed it in his life. He experienced it in the lowest of the lows that any human has ever experienced. Out of his heart came scripture, even when suffering. Ultimately, friends, ultimately we cannot be the righteous one of Psalm 1. But once we realize that the righteous one perished so that we could be blessed as we pursue that, as we meditate on that, as we chew on that, as we realize that's the message of the Bible, as we realize that's the Lord's teaching and that's his instruction, as we do that, we will increasingly become selfless, righteous, and fruitful. Not needing to live life for ourselves, but living for him. Not needing to shed ourselves of God to have life, but finding life with God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your righteousness given to us by grace through faith. We thank you that the Father sees us as those who love the scriptures. We thank you that the Father smiles at us as if we have our whole lives been fruitful. We thank you that you're in us now by your spirit, in fact, producing that love, that joy, that peace, that patience, that gentleness, that goodness, that self-control. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for how your word buries us, but then brings us back to life in the gospel. May we have incredible humility because we are wicked 
And may we have incredible confidence because we're righteous and loved and enjoyed in you. Holy Spirit, cause us to walk out into this world not full of ourselves and not afraid. Help us to remember that we are far worse than we could dare dream, but far more loved than we could ever imagine. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.